Welcome to episode 12 of Literary Disco, the story songs episode. In today's episode, we will do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. Then Todd finally has convinced us to discuss story songs. So we will each present a few songs with uh, narrative lyrics. A few awesome songs. Let's just be honest here. Well, that's up for debate. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pastel. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hello. Let's start with Todd. Todd, do you actually have a book to discuss I today? actually have a book to discuss. All right. We're evolving. <laughs> so uh, today um, is the beginning of the Republican National Convention on the television machine. And I guess in real life in Tampa, Florida. So naturally, I want to talk about a book that concerns the end of the world. Um, <laughs> oh, easy Republican joke. Hey, this is actually a brand new book. And I'm, I'm writing a review of it this week. And it's a book called The Last Policeman by a writer named Ben H. Winters. Um, a writer I'd never heard of before. Um, and his previous book was... Um, Sense and Sensibility and Zombies. No, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. And Sea Monsters, is that what it is? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. So he wrote the Sense and Sensibility one. So I, I wasn't expecting a lot from this because I thought it was sort of like a joke. He was like a joke book writer. But no, this is a really awesome book. It is the best crime novel I've read in, I don't know, a long time. Most inventive. And the reason it's so inventive is that it takes place um, basically in present day. But there is a giant asteroid that is hurtling towards Earth, and the planet has six months until it's going to be destroyed. The, the main character is a detective. He's a homicide detective. And there's a great line in the book. It's actually somewhat far in, but it, it, it basically describes um, you know, why this book is so interesting. And the line is, the end of the world changes everything from a law enforcement perspective. And he's basically the one cop who's still investigating a murder. Everyone else, they just, you know, are letting it go. Um, but he's mm-hmm. he's the last one. It's it's very noirish, but it's also funny in places and sad. Um, and it it's you know realistic in a way because it, it's dealing with you know what people do in their last days on Earth, the choices that they make, the decisions that they make. And so in the city that he's living in, he lives in. Um, the, it takes place in um, uh, the East Coast um, in Massachusetts. And it's a city where a lot of people keep killing themselves. And so the murder that happens is someone who has killed themselves, it seems, inside of a McDonald's. Um, it looks like they've hung himself, but this guy realizes that it, it doesn't make sense, so he goes and he investigates it. And the reason I am fascinated by this book is that as a writer, you know, I think it's hard to make people care a lot of times when we know what the ending is. And the ending in this is that the world is about to end. But he somehow mm-hmm. is able to invest the reader in not just the dead guy, but also in this detective. And it's it's just extraordinarily inventive and uh, a really interesting take in the first book in a trilogy. So another book or two, or two more books are coming from it um, as well. So it's The Last Policeman by Ben H. Winters. And I absolutely loved it. I read it. Um, in about two nights, and all I could do when I wasn't reading was think about it, and then, because I can't do anything that's not public, I tweeted about it, and then I set up a MySpace about it, and a Friendster, and um, uh, an Orkut all about it as well. Remember Orkut? Was that one of it? One of those things? Yeah. And You know, uh, well, it's funny. I mean, listening to you talk about that, what it makes me think is that 
in a way, all noir detective stories are about somebody fighting for the law and for what's right mm-hmm. in a world that doesn't care. Right. In a world that, yeah. that in a city that has gone wrong in or a town. You know, crime is rampant. <laughs> and so this is sort of the most extreme version right. of that, where it's like the world's going to end, so nobody cares. Right. And so the one person willing to stand up for justice and law, in I mean, that's a great idea. Uh, but it seems really hard to maintain, so that's, I'm impressed. He's able to because also the, the main character is the, this cop, um, and his parents, his mother was murdered, which is why he became a cop, you learn. And his father basically wasted away to nothing and killed himself um, out of grief. And so he's got that in his background, which is sort of a, you know, a not untypical noir background for a cop. Something, you know, it's how Batman becomes Batman also, you know. Um, yeah. But he, so he's got the weight of, of, of this past, but he also has... You know, a fuck up sister who's who believes in the conspiracy theories that are going around that maybe the government are, is building a base on the moon and they're going to get us all out. <laughs> um, and so he he's able to invest the story with a lot of real world stuff. But the the thing that always attracts me to crime novels that take a different take is that at the end of the day, it's still about that dead body. Yeah, uh, I should probably jump in then because my book is a little apocalyptic, too. Um, I. I wanted to talk about this book called The Ecology of Fear by Mike Davis. This is a, his book is, I think it's, when was it written? In 1990, so it might be a little dated now, uh, but I read it in college, um, and it's a nonfiction book about the city of Los Angeles, and Mike Davis, I think he teaches at UCLA or maybe USC. No, he, but teaches he's at, a, um, he teaches at UC Riverside. Oh, does he really? Yeah. Oh, cool. So, well, then you probably know more about Mike Davis, the man, than I do. But as far as I can tell, based on uh, his books, he's sort of this expert on Los Angeles and the history and ecology of Los Angeles. And this book, Ecology of Fear, is um, basically about why Los Angeles is the worst place to build a city (laughs) and how the city, in terms of its history of design, you know, its layout and the way the buildings were built and the streets and the way the water is brought to it, everything about this Mm -hmm. city is so wrong. It sounds like something that only people that know Los Angeles would like, but that's not the case at all because I think Los Angeles, you know, like a lot of Western cities, uh, but in particular like Las Vegas, there are these cities that were so late in the game that were designed with the automobile in mind, that were designed with a certain suburban lifestyle in mind. And he he really takes that whole concept apart and shows where a lot of our shortcomings in terms of city planning are coming to bite us in the ass uh, in terms of fires, droughts, floods, and it's really an amazing book. It's also, it, it has some funnier, lighter moments. Like, he talks about how many times Los Angeles has been destroyed in movies and novels. Hmm. He talks about the ecology that has developed with coyotes eating mm-hmm. house pets. And how that is actually a functioning ecology where the coyotes have learned to survive off of house pets. And humans in Los Angeles keep providing them with their food <laughs> and it's really weird but it's true and you know and he, he it, it's actually an incredibly scientific book it's not theoretical it's not abstract he backs it all up with he does a lot of interviews with geologists about earthquakes for example and the fault lines that crisscross Los Angeles and you know he just talks about the different ways that Los Angeles is a city that was a good idea gone wrong. You know, a book you might like if you like that is *The Myth of Solid Ground* by David Ulin, um, who writes all about the fact that by living in California and LA specifically, 
you know, you're living in quicksand, basically. We're, we're right. just waiting to be swallowed. Um, yeah. And, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the California dream is you arrive here. But here does, could, could be in Alaska. <laughs> There's right. a really big earthquake sometime soon. Right. Um, but that's well, that's what he book. talks about a lot in this book is about how Los Angeles is marketed and how it's, you know, the, the, the show business of selling Los Angeles as a destination to live and California as the, the golden land where the weather is always great. You know, mm-hmm. he talks about the fact that actually, if you look at the, the geological history of Los Angeles, it has been an incredibly mild period since it's been a city mm-hmm. that, that, that it's an aberration that for the last, <laughs> you know, 80 years or whatever, the weather has been so wonderful that the reality is, is a really terrible place to live. There's no <laughs> access to water. Right. It's, you know, life is very tough here. And, and, you know, that generations of humans before knew to sort of avoid this valley right. that we have decided to cram 8 million people. So what you're saying is if I read this, I will continue to feel superior about my East coast life. Yes. yes, that's correct. That's but the, that's the difference like is... You will still be pale. Yeah, you'll still be pasty, and Ryder and I will still look really healthy. Well, well I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty pasty. <laughs> what What are you reading, Julia Pistel? Okay, I have a great one. I Side note, I'm really excited that we're doing three intelligent reads before our mind-blowing story songs episode. Look, that story songs episode, people are going to find themselves in it. Find themselves bored. Find themselves annoyed. So, um, I recently went on vacation. This comes with a personal tale. Oh. So, uh, I went on vacation to Acadia National Park in Maine, which, have you guys been there, by the way? No. No, I've never been to Maine. I want to go so bad. First of all, spoiler alert, Maine is the best state. We already know California is a hellhole, but uh, Maine is, it's wonderful. It's just great. My family lately has been, everyone in my family except for me is very athletic. So what was decided was, you know, by the council of siblings and cousins is that we would take a day out of Acadia and drive and hike Mount Katahdin, which is the tallest peak in Maine and it's 5,270 feet. Um, so it's so a, it's a mile. mile, right? So yeah. you can do it in a day, but it's, you know, like four to five hours each way. So I agreed instantaneously to do this, even though I'm in no such shape to do this. And I got very sick two days before doing it. So um, I was like, how am I going to do this? I'm too ashamed to back out. So what I did was um, to prepare, I read Henry David Thoreau's The Maine Woods. Uh, which is an incredible book. I mean, uh, I've read Walden a couple times, and it's just wonderful. But if you haven't read The Maine Woods, it's just it's everything Henry David Thoreau is, and it's, it's just beautiful writing and hilarious because I, I also read a companion book about Maine and Katahdin. Basically, I dorkily prepared for a literary adventure. Um, awesome. And he was a, a horrible navigator. So half the stuff he writes in this, and he's like, it's 14 miles to the top. It's less than four. Uh, so he's doing all this <laughs> compass navigation and stuff. It's all completely wrong. Um, but the book is just beautiful. And he also hiked Katahdin and didn't make it to the top because he was so insistent on not taking a path. He went with a group, and they, they just, like, 
bushwhacked through the woods and they stayed with all these lumberjacks on the way who used to live, you know, where Baxter Park is now. And it's just a great book. Um, so here's a, here's a night. Nice, I'll read a beautiful passage and then a like traditionally excitable thorough passage. So it has a lot of stuff like this. At first we lay awake talking of our course and finding ourselves in so convenient a posture for studying the heavens with the moon and stars shining in our faces. Our conversation naturally turned upon astronomy and we recounted by turns the most interesting discoveries in that science. But at length, <laughs> these people you'd want to kill them if you went hiking with them be like oh we're gonna talk about them, the stars again great all right here we go i seem to remember <laughs> us laying down at bennington and having in-depth discussions about the stars huh. yeah but we had a lot of xanax <laughs> we were high on literature my friend right yeah. we were high on life and literature and two dollar pbrs and friendship <laughs> just because you don't like lying down on the ground doesn't mean that other people don't enjoy such pastimes. But wait, I want to read you another part because what okay. happens is he goes on forever about, you know, trees and hiking around with lumberjacks. And then when he gets to the top... Not a euphemism. Top, He's actually hiking with lumberjacks. Anyway, so here's some beautiful writing. Why do I even do this podcast? It's a real what is it to be admitted to a museum to see a myriad of particular things compared with being shown some star's surface, some hard matter in its home? Here he's talking about seeing trees and rocks and stuff actually on the mountain. I stand in awe of my body. This matter to which I am bound has become so strange to me. I fear not spirits, ghosts, of which I am one, that my body might. But I fear bodies. I tremble to meet them. What is this titan that has possession of me? Talk of mysteries. Think of our life in nature, daily to be shown matter, to come in contact with it. Rocks, trees, wind on our cheeks, the solid earth, the actual world, the common sense, contact, contact. So that's all italicized. Hold on. That is awesome. And secondly, that sounds exactly like Walt Whitman. That's crazy. It's it's the same idea. Part of what is very admirable about Thoreau and what got me through my own very difficult hike was they were just dudes who were they really were doing extremely difficult athletic things just for the sake of being in nature i mean it sounds so stupid to say but like they didn't have rei you know before i went camping i like (laughs) spent a million dollars and and thoreau so one of the cool things is right before he did this hike there was a rock slide that is now the best way to get up so rocks slid down four miles and hmm. destroyed the mountain. And within, like, two years of these unstable rocks sliding down the mountains, people were like, let's go up them. That is the most hmm. unstable that's decision crazy. you could possibly make. But that's what Thoreau, those are the kind of, you know, adventures he was going on. And Whitman, too. I mean, and these weren't, like, a day up in your car from Acadia. They were right. multi-week let's just walk up this mountain and see what's going on. But And it's a beautiful hike. It's a beautiful book. And at the top, there's what's cool about Katahdin is it's flat at the top. So hmm. all on the top, it looks like, the way Thoreau describes it, it looks like it just rained boulders on the top of the mountain. It's impossible to understand why it looks like that. But hmm. you walk across this mile uh, that's called Thoreau Spring, named after him, it, although he didn't get there because he didn't use the trail. Um. <laughs> so it's sort of false so advertising. Beautiful. Yes, completely. Yeah, yeah. But completely can, can we be honest about one thing, though? 
that yeah. piece you read also, if read in poet voice, would be fantastic. We should, Todd, you should have read some of the story song lyrics in poet voice. Oh my god, I would love to. Harry Chapin in poet voice oh my god. is actually a really great call. Harry Chapin in poet yeah. voice also sounds like a great band. <laughs> oh, no. Alright, stick around for when we discuss story songs next. Okay, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, what we're going to do next is a slightly different than what we normally do. Um, and it's primarily because I have a sick addiction. Um, some would say fascination. <laughs> you do, you're a troubled man. I'm a very troubled man. And my addiction is to uh, story songs. It is something that I oddly both loathe and love in equal measure. Um, so when we're talking about story songs, there's a, there's a particular kind of song. It's not just your average, oh, I love a girl, and she left me, and I hate my life. Um, or it's the, um, oh, I want to go out tonight. Tonight's awesome, and we're going to listen to music. It's, it's more of a song that has an actual narrative arc, so something that has a beginning, middle, and end. And I, I view these story songs as, as falling into a couple different categories, um, I believe there are the story songs that actually talk about a particular kind of tragedy. So, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which is about, uh, if memory serves me correct, um, someone being electrocuted in the electric chair, something like that. And also sung by the wonderful Vicki Lawrence, who I think we can all agree is a great talent. Um, or a Kenny Rogers song, for instance, like The Coward of the County, which is one of my favorite songs about a gang rape followed by a triple murder. Um, so there's that kind of story song. And then there's the story song that has to do with the perils of being a famous musician. So, for instance, uh, Faithfully by Journey, um, Wanted Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi, um, Anything by the Counting Crows, I think, falls into this uh, general rubric. And then there's the songs about the perils of dating a singer-songwriter, which I think are, um, you know, story songs in and of themselves. My fa- favorite being um, Everything by Harry Chapin. Um, and we're going to listen to one of his songs, um, Taxi, which I think is probably the single worst and greatest song in the history of American music. Um, so I'm addicted to these songs both because I loathe them and because I find that they are different than other kinds of songs. Um, they let's, let's talk about that difference, because okay. I think, I mean, I'm a huge lyrics person. I'm obsessed with lyrics. And I, ma- I basically listen to songs because of their lyrics. And um, so for me, story songs are a little too far in a certain direction most of the time. <laughs> I tend to not like story songs. I, I mean, I think about certain ones like... Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. I oh, love, I love it's Fast amazing. Car. It's a great that's song. That's a good example of a perfect story that's song. That's a perfect story but song. I, I think a lot of times story songs are too narrative and therefore too specific. And, you know, I, I like the songs that have a narrative component. Like a lot of Springsteen songs have a narrative component, but leave room for interpretation. Or they pick a moment uh, that is very narrative. Like if you think about the opening to Thunder Road. Uh, which is beautiful, and he captures a wonderful scene. You know, screen door slams, Mary's dress waves, like a vision she dances across the porch while the radio plays. 
Roy Orbison singing for the lonely. Sorry. Hey, that's me, and I want you only. And he creates a scene of wanting to get her to get into the car with him so they could drive out of this godforsaken town. And it ends up being the lyrics are so beautiful, and they they build to a more sort of anthematic, generalized uh, message. But I guess if we don't get a whole beginning, middle, and end. We actually are just getting yeah. the beginning of a story, and then he's taking us on this journey lyrically that goes completely elsewhere, and what could happen or could be, and it just becomes wonderful, you know thematic lyrics and then he comes back to the story and we leave it open ended. That is not a story song that is a just a great song right. with great lyrics that have a story yeah. element we're talking about the kinds of songs that really have a beginning, middle and an end and are really um, self-contained I think is the, 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 the they have to be self-contained So I'm coming at this just so the listeners know from a completely different place um, from you two now I think you are going to find this surprising but um, I almost never ever listen to lyrics really so weird so um this was really challenging for me because i i mean i really don't know i don't think of songs based on their lyrics i think of them based on the music and the chord progression and however the music makes me feel so i just like i found this incredibly challenging i had to really work hard to think of story songs but i mean obviously i don't have your um complete rock knowledge todd all right so the i i believe the most important story song um in the history of story songs is harry chapin's taxi um now a little background on this song um i was a harry chapin fan as a child because my sister karen would listen to cats in the cradle over and over and over again because apparently she wanted to relive the fact that we had a deadbeat father and so she would play the 45 of Cats in the Cradle incessantly. That is a well, great story song. She identified with that the music. A, that is the quintessential story song. That is a quintessential yeah. story song. It's a pretty song. good one. Um, and it's, it's also, you know, it's horrible also. It's just a terrible song but awesome. <laughs> and so I remember hearing Taxi from a very early age and, and really liking it. So... Um, I won't give it any more preface now. We'll, we'll play it, um, and then uh, and then let's talk about it. I'm actually going to play it and then jump ahead to the end, because there's about three minutes there that are really unnecessary. It was raining hard in Frisco. I needed one more fare to make my night. A lady up ahead waved to flag me down. She got in at the light. Oh, where you going to, my lady blue? It's a shame you ruined your gown in the rain. She just looked out the window. She said, 16 pops, I think. Something about her was familiar I could swear I've seen her face before But she said, I'm sure you're mistaken And she didn't say anything more It took a while, but she looked in the mirror Then she glanced at the license for my name A smile seemed to come to her slowly It was a sad smile just the same And she said, how are you, Harry? 
you soon Through the too many miles and the too little smiles I still remember you Somewhere in a fairy tale I used to take her home in my car We learned about love in the back of a Dodge The lesson hadn't gone too far You see, she was gonna be an actress And I was gonna learn to fly She took off to find the footlights I took off to find the sky There was not much more for us to talk about Whatever we had once was gone So I turned my cab into the driveway Past the gate and the fine trim lawns And she said, we must get together But I knew She hand me twenty dollars for a two-fifty fare She said, Harry, keep the change Well, another man might have been angry And another man might have been hurt But another man never would have let her go I stashed the bill in my shirt And she walked away in silence It's strange how you never know But we'd both gotten what we'd asked for Such a long, long time ago You see, she was gonna be an actress Flying in my taxi, taking tips and getting stoned. I go flying so high when I'm stoned. So, uh, as you can see, um, <laughs> he wanted to be a pilot and she wanted to it's... be an actress. Right, and then what happened, Todd? Well, um, as fate would have it, yeah, let's he's test now, your reading comprehension here. Um, he's now flying in his taxi, and she's acting happy. Um, right. so that's the that's where that ended up. But now, you know, I always assumed that she was a failure as an actress in some way, but actually, listening to it this time around, she's just living is she just a housewife? Is the implication right? Or she has a comfortable yes. home when she has money, well, but she's she not has an actress, awesome house, right? So, right. I kind of I thought she was successful. But she's not a successful actress. She's just, she's a failure because she absconded her dreams to this man she's acting happy to be married to. 
You see, uh, okay. she gave up the bohemian uh, lifestyle to be a millionaire's wife because they're living in a huge house, and okay. she gives him twenty dollars for a two fifty fare. And but even though it seems like the narrator, yes. let's say, yes. <laughs> um, even though it appears that he is a complete loser driving a taxi, right. he's actually the one who has succeeded because he is flying in said taxi. Well, no, because he's he's stoned. He's a, I think it's a sad. It's that he's a failure too. Yes, they're both failures. Yeah, yes. he's a drug addict. But he seems he pretty. pretty well, he's not a drug addict. He's a hophead. <laughs> <laughs> he needs that eighteen fifty or whatever. Right. He he is not happy with his station in life either, and that's the ironic thing is that. They both failed at their dreams, and yet here they are mm. together. That's basically every Harry Chapin song dr- boils down to this. People <laughs> fail at their dreams, and they can never achieve what they wanted to. Harry Chapin, for me, is an example of the completely, like, just on-the-nose story songwriter. Yes, like, there's no, There's no literary <laughs> technique. None. There's literally ju- it's just spelled out for you. Yes. I mean, this song is maybe his most nuanced. <laughs> and... and <laughs> That's that, this is why Harry Chapin has a very specific following, and like right. you know, those of us probably who discovered him at a young age, because for me, I was probably like twelve when I went through a Harry Chapin phase. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just I have to say, it's not very good, man. It just doesn't. No, it's, it's not a good story song. songwriting. Right. So, do you have another one that's a good story song, Todd, to share, or do you did you only pick horrible Let story me, songs? I, I would like to play a current story song. How about that? And, and one that, that I think that is sounds great. unusual. This is a song called um, Buckner's Bolero by a group called The Baseball Project. Um, and The Baseball Project is made up of members of uh, R.E.M. and the Dream Syndicate and the Minus Five. Um, and so they're all parts of a very successful band. And they have put out two albums all about baseball. And all of their songs have something to do with baseball. This song in particular, Buckner's Bolero, um, if you're a baseball fan, which I know Ryder is a pretty huge one, um, Ryder and I constantly go into ball games together. Oh, um, we're always discussing the stats. Yeah, Ryder loves the uh, the sabermetrics, and Julia and I are also constantly, we're in a fantasy Saber team. Sabermetrics, that's not a real team, is it? No, it's, that's, it, it's not a team, Ryder. It's a way of looking They're the at ones that, do they, do they get the most touchdown? Uh, so, at any rate... Um, this song that we're about to play, Buckner's Bolero by the Baseball Project, uh, is the Baseball Project's attempt to um, absolve Bill Buckner for allowing the New York Mets to beat the Boston Red Sox in the 1986 World Series, uh, something he's been blamed for for the last uh, 26 years or so. Um, and the reason I like this song is that it's a story song that is in list form, basically, but it has a conclusion that all makes sense. And there's a lot of great short fiction that is lists. So things like The Things They Carried, every single story by Mary Robeson, um, every story people have ripped off from Amy Hempel, um, <laughs> all tend to have lists in it as well. So let's take a listen to the baseball project. If Bobby O'Hara hadn't raged at Sullivan and Yacht, And hadn't been traded to the Mets for Calvin Giraldi. If oil can Boyd hadn't been such a nutcase. And Jim Rice had twice 
That is and an amazing song. Wow, are you wrong? I don't agree with Todd. I absolutely <laughs> love this song. So here's the thing. Todd, that is such baseball geekery. It's just like... Well, yeah, it's, it's just a it list but it's of like insider references. It. It's just a bunch of people singing <laughs> the same stupid... It's like you could have made... I mean, it, it could be a song. Like, it could be like a bunch of computer geeks sitting around talking about the new Intel processor. Doesn't work as well as a PC. No. Like, just it, it comes to a very important conclusion that... At the end of trauma, there is a human being at the end of it. That they list all these things that could have happened that could have had the same exact thing, which is that the Boston is Red Sox. That is not a story song. That is, a, that yeah. is an argument okay. song that is trying to make an argument. and it's rallying. Is an argument it's listing. Song. <laughs> it's, but it, if it was a story song, it would draw me and Julia into it. But the fact of the matter is, it's for insiders who like want to geek out on baseball stats and baseball facts. And it's like, ugh. It, it's a series of facts that lead up to very important stuff for the majority of the world, other than you and Julia. But a story song is about drawing you into a specific story and, and sharing that with you not you don't need extra knowledge in order to appreciate it. That's yes. a definition of a story. Oh. This, you that need was extra not knowledge. a list of facts. That was a list of references. And so I, I agree that it is a little bit on the esoteric side. Sort of like a poem that references other poems that I have not read. But I think what it does, if you listen to the lyrics all the way through and get to the end without killing yourself is that it does the same sort of thing that I think good list stories do, which is that it accumulates to say something. And then it says, but here's why you should also remember him. He had nearly 3,000 hits. He stole a lot of bases. Um, these are all baseball terms, by the way. Uh, Julia and Ryder. <laughs> um, I mean, okay. I, I know it's easy to, you know, bully us for not knowing anything about baseball. I, I am clear on that. But I will say that I do love a lot of sports writing. So it's not a sports thing. It's a clarity yeah. thing. Yeah. So, like, for example, Bob Stanley picked a pretty bad time to uncork a wild pitch. And I'm sure yes. he's still thinking that you could have blocked it rich. Who's rich? What's this rich pretty is, bad time? 
Rich is Rich Gedman. Yeah, no, he don't tell me. This is rhetorical. This is rhetorical. You know how they talk about inside baseball? This song is inside baseball. Well, Julia or Ryder, why don't you pick one of your, um, I'm sure, easier to understand story songs? I, I would like to go because I also originally chose um, a list song. So when I was thinking about um, story songs, as I mentioned, it was hard for me. And I realize that we are not properly equipped really to talk about this because the two genres that are best at this are country music and rap lyrics and i am not an expert in either there is some uh country music that i like and respect uh, including the work of johnny cash and the first thing i thought of when we were talking about this was um 25 minutes to go from at Folsom prison which oh, a good one. isn't you know, it's not like these dumb Harry Chapin songs that we're talking about and that it doesn't say, you. like, once upon a time, this happened. But it is very literary in the way it sets the scene and moves through time um, and has a point of view. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell And I've got 25 minutes to go And the whole town's waiting just to hear me yell I got 24 minutes to go. Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal with 23 minutes to go. But nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes to go. Well, I sent for the governor and the whole darn bunch with 21 minutes to go. And I called up the mayor, but he's out to lunch. I got 20 more minutes to go. Then the sheriff said, boy, I'm going to watch you die with 19 minutes to go. So I laughed in his face and I spit in his eye with 18 minutes to go. Now here comes a preacher for to save my soul With 13 minutes to go And he's talking about burning but I'm so cold 12 more minutes to go Well they're testing the trap and it chills my spine 11 more minutes to go And the trap and the rope all oh, they work just fine 10 more minutes Go. Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free With nine more minutes to go But this ain't the movie, so forget about me Eight more minutes to go With my feet on the trap and my head in the noose Five more minutes to go Want somebody come and cut me loose? Seven more minutes to go. I can see the mountains, I can see the sky, but three more minutes to go. And it's too darn pretty for a man to wanna die. But two more minutes to go. I can see the buzzards, I can hear the crows. One more minute to go and now i'm swinging and here i go oh, 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 oh. that is definitely a story song. that one yes. is slightly better 
Van Buckner's Valero. Okay, now I want to talk. Actually, talk about this because I was under the impression when we picked this that we would actually talk about the songs and you know their literary qualities rather than yes. just defend baseball. <laughs> um, there's a lot of reasons I picked this song. First of all, um, it is I, I can't. Every time it sort of comes up in my playlist or something, I can't really imagine listening to this song for fun you know it's a very disturbing experience and i think part of what is very literary about it is it has no chorus Mm -hmm. there's no relief it's just a pure countdown to what you know has to inevitably happen based on the structure of the song Another thing, another reason that I picked it, I'm sure everybody knows this, but uh, when this song was first recorded, it was part of um, At Folsom Prison, which was a recording mm-hmm. that Johnny Cash did in front of <laughs> prisoners. What a weird song to sing yeah. in front of yes, prisoners. Exactly. Oh my God. So I'm so fascinated by this because I think sometimes we forget about the relationship that musicians have to their audience. I mean, it's same with books, but I'm just so obsessed with this idea of him singing this song. And if they go crazy at the mm, end, they love it. It's just such yeah. a pure reflection of their experiences or whatever, or the the mix of there's humor in it, there's straight talk about <laughs> what's going to happen to you. Right. You know, there's no soft pedaling around. He's a complete badass. Uh, to me, Johnny Cash is the original badass. I thought of that, and then I felt like I had to include a boy named Sue, which is very simple um, in in more in the way that you are thinking of story songs, Todd. And, um, and then I came across this really interesting fact, which I did not know. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get rid. Okay, we can stop it there. So uh, the story, I mean, it's very simple. He's named Sue. He finds his father. He confronts him about this naming, and, and his father says, well, you know, you grew up to be tough, so mission accomplished, basically. Um, (laughs) So it's very funny, and the lyrics are very clever. And when I looked it up, what I found out, I'm sure our listeners will be excited about this, is this song is actually by Shel Silverstein. Shel Silverstein wrote a crap load of story songs. Yeah, it's a big songwriter. And he sang them as well. Daddy left home when I was three, and it didn't leave much for me, just this hero guitar and a half-filled bottle of booze. And it wasn't just that he running hit, but the meanest thing that old man did is before he left, he went and named me Sue. Yeah, he must have thought it was quite a joke, and it got lots of laughs from lots of folks. It seems I had a fight my whole life through. Well, the girl would giggle, and I'd turn red. Some guy would laugh, but have to bust his head, and I'd tell you, Um, But I loved hearing that because it's like his what crazy style completely comes through Mm -hmm. in his vocal quality. I love his voice so much. I have to say I actually really like Shel Silverstein's version. Yeah, I love him. I love how 
what mm. an insane person he seemed to be, almost creepy. The funny thing about about Shel Silverstein as the songwriter is that you know you can you can hear where the sidewalk ends in his songs. You know, there's that same mm-hmm. sort of strange whimsy in this song, or even in Sylvia's Mother, or or the cover of the Rolling Stone. He wrote a lot of songs for Doctor Hook inexplicably i've always been fascinated by the differences between poetry and lyrics though i mean mm-hmm. to me there is there i mean shell silverstein is maybe a bad example because he wrote children's poetry uh and so his stuff actually translates really well into good lyrics but i feel like there is a, a big difference between a really good poem and really good lyrics to a song um one of one of my favorite songs of all time is madam george by van morrison and i don't think it counts as a strictly story song um but I'd like to play a little bit of it just because the lyrics are so beautiful. Down Cypress Avenue With the childlike vision sleeping into view Clicking, clacking of the high heel shoe Ford and Fitzroy Madam Joy Marching with the soldier boy behind He's much older now with head on drinking wine And that smell of sweet perfume comes drifting through Early cool night like Shalimar stops A kids out in the street collecting bottle tops Gone for cigarettes and matches in the shops Happy taking Madam Joy This is an example of really incredible lyrics and incredible songwriting that is probably a failure as a story song because you, it's so hard to get your head around what is actually right. happening. He, he, The song is just completely filled with very specific, wonderful moments between characters, but I have no idea what the song is about. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put a link on our website to... Um, uh, one of the greatest essays about music and about lyrics ever written by Lester Bangs, who's one of the greatest. Uh, oh, yeah. And he wrote an essay about Great this writer. song. He wrote about the whole album Astro Weeks, Van Morrison's album Astro Weeks, which is a perfect album if no one has. If you haven't heard it, you have to buy it. But Lester Bangs wrote about this whole album and he sort of obsesses over the song Madam George. And, you know, he has this thing. He's like, I think this song is about a drag queen uh, because there are all these references to this character, Madam mm-hmm. George. But then, of course, if you actually listen to the way Van Morrison is singing it, he's actually singing the lyrics, Madam Joy. And um, it's, mm. it's so it's this weird thing, like, what is the song actually about? And Van Morrison has refused to ever say what it's about. But it's really, regardless of whether you think it's about a drag queen or, or if there's a specific story that you can pull out of it, it, it's such a beautiful song about growing up and how you relate to the place where you grew up. So in a way, it's one of the greatest story songs ever written, but in a strictly speaking sense of what we're talking about, it's a horrible story song because it's hard to nail exactly what it is. It's just a great song with amazing lyrics. Okay, this one that I want to play now, though, is the best... I mean, so the best story songwriter of all time, in my opinion, is Tom Waits. 
and this I, I, I could have chosen a million different of his songs uh, because he has he's one of these guys who some of his his songs actually could just be printed as a short story and they work hmm. and mm-hmm. so I want to play one of those uh, this is called Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis <laughs> okay I mean even the title alone it, this, this could be a short story Charlie, I'm pregnant Living on Ninth Street Right above a dirty bookstore Of Euclid Avenue I stopped taking dope I quit drinking whiskey My old man plays the trombone Works out at the track It says that he loves me Even though it's not his baby It says that he raised him up Like he was on some He gave me a ring That was won by his mother Takes me out dancing every Saturday night. Hey, Charlie, I think about you. The time I pass the filling station, the counter all the grease you swear in your hair. Still loud that record Little Anthony and Imperials But someone stole my record player Oh, now how do you like that? Hey, Charlie, I almost went crazy After Mario got busted Charlie, hey, 
I'll be eligible for parole come Valentine's Day. I'm going to go kill myself, so that was nice. Uh, For me, <laughs> that is the definition of an amazing story song. Mm, I love that yeah, song. Yeah, because it has, I mean, it has, it, I mean, obviously, like, it starts with this letter, so the, even the title alone, it's a Christmas card from a hooker, so there's just so many literary techniques going on. He's writing it as a card to this character named Charlie. We know that the singer's probably Charlie. And then, you know, she's lying to him. She starts off with this, you know, oh, I'm married and my life is finally good. But then there's just all these great lines like, I think I'm happy for the first time since my accident. We don't need to know what the accident was. But we just get this image of this woman and her life and the tragedy and the series of problems and the drug addictions, and it's just so tragic. And then, of course, at the end, the big turn, that she's been lying, and, you know, she's in jail, and she just needs money so she can get out for parole. It's like, oh, there's just a full-on short story going on there, but it's still so artful and not on the nose, like I would say, Harry Ch- I, One thing that music <laughs> can really do and does do so often is the direct address, you know, the second person. It doesn't feel, for some reason, as artificial um, as it does in literature. So what have we learned today, kids, about story songs? Uh, We have learned that you don't have good taste. That is fucked up. I have tremendous taste. (laughs) How dare you? Don't make me put on Please Come to Boston. I'll just sing it. Please come to Boston for the springtime. See, that song is about a singer who wants his girlfriend to come to him wherever he is. And then he becomes a great big star. You can listen to that on your own time. Well, that was uh, that was Literary Disco's attempt at actually getting some music onto the <laughs> disco show. Um, we probably won't do that again. Um, uh, nope. But that, uh, that was our brief examination of some story songs. If you like the songs you heard or you want to hear more, we'll have links up on our Facebook after the airing. And the give show. us examples, too. Yeah, let us know what you like uh, for story songs. And, um, and thanks for tolerating uh, Harry Chapin. Because you see, the thing is, Julia, okay. he's flying in his taxi. All right. I got it. I think I got it. <laughs> and she's acting happy. She's acting happy. It's a huge turn. Is what's happening. The, the gauntlet has been thrown for her. <laughs> and that'll do it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Moby Duck by Donovan Hong, a nonfiction book tracking the adventures of rubber duckies around the world. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening. Romantic.